Welcome to Tech Now with Tom Lyon, the podcast where host Tom Lyon talks with industry leaders about upcoming technology. Now here's Tom. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Tech Now with Tom Lyon. We have a guest today, Mr. Jim Dowling, who is CEO at Logical Clocks, a Swedish company doing some very interesting stuff. How are you today, Jim? I'm great. Thanks for having me on, Tom. It's a doctor, by the way. <laughs> oh, doctor. Uh, I'm joking. You, of course. Yes. No, I know. But those PhDs are a lot harder to get in Europe anyway, right? No, no, we, we have we have short ones. <laughs> anyway, uh, so Jim is the founder of the Hops Project, which is a, a more interesting version of Hadoop for the world. How, how did you get started with Hops and what, what can you tell us about it? Yeah, I can. I mean, there's a long history all the way back. So I'm a distributed systems researcher. Um, so I'm also a professor at KTH University in Stockholm, and I'm interested in anything distributed systems related. And um, I did previously work at MySQL um, for a couple of years from 2005 to 2007. And we, I was working on this very interesting distributed database called MySQL Cluster. It's not the normal MySQL. I, I call it NDB, which is the name of the, the backend database so as not to confuse people. And um, I saw the Hadoop project sometime, I think around 2010, 2011, and I saw this architecture they had for the file system, and they had this name node where the entire metadata was stored on the heap of a single Java virtual machine. And I said, well, that's kind of an interesting problem for using this database. What if we moved the state of the name node into this in-memory database, could we do it? And would we be able to scale out the namespace of, of the Hadoop yeah, process? Actually, it's, it's fascinating to me that Hadoop's gotten as far as it has, and it still basically has this unscalable name node. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, the, the, yeah, I mean, if you think about it, the, you're, you're restricted now by improvements in, in garbage collection in the JVM. Right? It's not, it's not, you know, the servers will get bigger, but the JVM you know, we're going to still have the problem with uh, stop the world garbage collection events. Uh, so the, the the heap problem is not going to go away uh, with with improvements in hardware. We need improvements in software. So that's why we decided to go distribute it and, and have a look at it. And you know, it, it's taken quite a long time to get us where we are, where we have a, a production ready uh, file system built around this distributed uh, metadata layer. Um, but if I go back and tell you how, how it started, it started as a research project and I put some students on it to try and do a proof of concept in 2011 and I think around 2012 we had something and then I got more resources to put uh, into it from research projects. So we had a few PhD students and some master students working on it and we worked on it for many years and um, really I guess the breakthroughs came in 2017 when we showed that we in collaboration with Spotify and, and um, Oracle, we, we got 16 times the throughput of uh, the, the Hadoop file system on Spotify's Hadoop workload. Wow. And, um, you know, so we had a paper at uh, Usenix Fast and we won um, the CC Grid IEEE scale prize in 2017. So, you know, we got quite a bit of uh, momentum and visibility from that. Yeah, so this uh, this NDB that it's based on that that goes back quite a ways as well. When did that get started? Yeah, so that that, that was an interesting project actually. Ericsson, uh, the telecom company, developed that engine. Uh, a guy called Mikkel Ronström is actually behind that project, and 
Uh, yeah, so you can hear a bit of background there. Yeah. So um, uh, the, he 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 led this project, and Ericsson had a. If you remember, after the dot com burst, the bubble burst, uh, they had a really tough time, and they they let go of the project. They basically gave it away to to MySQL, who are this small little database company from nearby. And they took it on, and they they uh, they made a successful product out of it. It's now it's still quite you know heavily used within the telecom industry. It's a very high write, uh, um, you know, very high write performance database. It's an OLTP database, and it uh, scales to to you know very high numbers of uh, transactions per second. And from what I can tell, it's still maintained as part of the the mainstream MySQL. Like well, it's it's a different product team actually. I, I worked in that team. I did the first Java connector for the database back in two thousand and five, um, but the the team is is primarily still together from those days actually, you know, the the core development team and and they're making improvements all the time. So, um, you know, in the the latest release, they've added um, data center awareness to the to the product. You know, so that you can actually spread the database over several availability zones in the in the cloud compute center and it'll still be ha over that so there's still things coming through all the time i like to say that it takes 10 years to debug a distributed system and 10 years to debug a database and a distributed database is really hard so it's good that you've got a lot of uh, a lot of aging on that yeah i, I think the other thing that's interesting i guess from a research perspective is that um, you know that the, when we started out, PhD students don't tend to be particularly uh, disciplined in, in writing very reliable, robust code. But when you start working on a database like or a product like Hadoop, um, you come with a massive suite of tests that you just have to ensure that your tests keep passing. So um, you know that was good for us from the beginning that we we had to have the discipline. We couldn't just like you know hack something out and, and write the paper and then let the thing die in a heap. So right. in that sense, working on a production code base was, was very beneficial to getting something that would eventually move into a production system. Yeah, that's one of the great, great things about open source is it can be both production and available to students at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Well, we know there's a lot happening in open source at the moment in many different ways. Oh, yeah. Big news today. Yeah, and, and even Cloudera and Hortonworks, there's, there's a lot of consolidation going on out there right uh, in some sense it's it's you know i'm a little bit worried about some of the trends because you know what we see at least in the hadoop community uh, is that i mean amazon have been dominant in tar in terms of uh, you know the amount of people installing emr system and and that's really hurt the likes of cloudera and hortonworks and uh, i think they really saw this as a defensive measure to, to protect against that you know Right. So in that sense, it's not good for, for open source in the longer term. Yeah, too much consolidation never helps with that. So what are the, what are some of the other cool features about Hops? You guys have been pretty busy doing doing new things. Right? Yeah, so so the, the, the Hops platform is really just, I guess, it's, it's a, a new version of Hadoop in the sense that we've taken the metadata layer and we've made it distributed. And when you do that, it opens up a lot possibilities. So if I stick at the file system level, one of the things we did was we looked at some of the trends in hardware. So you've probably heard of NVMe uh, disks, which are a new form of, uh, like of course. Say, yeah, you know, high IOPS disks. And, and they're not just a bit faster than SSDs. I mean, the number of ops per second is an order of magnitude higher uh, than, than you get in SSDs. So 
what we looked at, we said, well, you know, our file system has these very big blocks because, you know, the, the cost of, of moving your disk head to, to read a, a location is very high. It's milliseconds. So if you're going to read data, you want to read a lot of data to, to amortize that cost of moving the disk head. Um, but when you have NVMe disks and you can read, you know, 50,000 IOPS per second on a disk, uh, that cost disappears. So, so can you make the block size very small, you would think, would be an obvious question to do for a file system. And that's not an easy thing to do in, in the Hadoop file system and in distributed file systems. So we, we had an insight there, which was, uh, let's look at, at, at some of the file size distributions that we see at, at, at existing Hadoop providers like Yahoo and Spotify. And we have our own quite large cluster with uh, you know half a petabyte. And what we saw was that most of the files, I mean, I think it was around 30% of Spotify's files were under 32 kilobytes in size. And right. Yahoo right. had pretty similar uh, observations. And we saw actually even 40% of the operations on the files were also on files under 64 kilobytes. So what we did was we actually we had this insight and we said, well, hang on. What if, instead of changing the block size, why don't we just store these small files on NVMe disks? And rather than storing them in the data nodes that you would do in Hadoop, we'll store them in a very uh, low latency read and write path. We'll store them in the metadata layer. Uh, so what we did, in fact, was we have a paper coming out now, and I think in December at Middleware, ACM Middleware Conference on this. And what we did was we, we put these small files, if they're under a you know, around a kilobyte or something, we'll just put them in memory in the in the database. And if they're higher than that, you can up to a configurable size. We saw up to about 128, 256 kilobytes was okay after that performance begins to degradate. But we basically put them using, uh, using NDB actually uh, on column disks in the supported by the file system in uh, the underlying file system in NDB. Uh, we we basically put the small files in in the in the metadata layer there. So that basically means we were getting performance like you know sixty times higher throughput uh, for reading and writing small files and sub ten millisecond read and writes for small files. Yeah, so, it's very yeah. interesting. There, there there's a parallel going on. I, I think it's uh, either ext4 or xfs, right, where they're beginning to put small small amounts of data in the inode. So it's a very yeah. similar kind of thing. Yeah, metadata, meta we call this metadata stuffing. It's be, the technique has kind of been around for a while. Um, but I guess what's interesting for us was that we're kind of marrying this, the general abstraction of having large blocks because you want to amortize costs on, on very you know low cost hardware, uh, spinning disks. Um, but you'd like to integrate then these very fast hardware and to make your file system fast for, for certain workloads. Um, and that, we thought that was kind of the interesting insight and, and, and result that we saw for that. And we, we have some, you know, um, workloads in the paper where we look at, at the kind of things you do in, in deep learning. So you might want to, for example, um, do inferencing on millions of images uh, or train on millions of images. Um, so there's interesting workloads for that. And, you know, this, this thing works very well because those images can be stored in, in NVMe disks and with low low latency access, it's almost like a key value store. Right, right. Yeah, I'm always warning people when they're talking about distributed storage as, you know, look at the metadata because that's where all the trouble is. And uh, yeah, people people tend to wave, wave their hands about small files and stuff like that. And that's, yeah, it always comes around to kill you in the end. 
It does, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the metadata thing is interesting for us because we're, <clears throat> we, we have another paper under submission, but it's, it's basically taking the metadata and we have a, a message bus which will push it into Elasticsearch. And so because we've got a production database, we can get a changelog from the database. Now, we do have a slight problem in that the changelog that we get doesn't order all of the file system operations correctly, so we have to solve that problem. Okay. Um, but basically, the metadata will be asynchronously replicated to somewhere like Elasticsearch so that you can do free text search in your metadata, which is quite a nice property to have in your file system. Right. I think uh, there's this company, Cumulo, right, which is doing a, a product where you can search the metadata, and that's... It's kind of their key differentiator, and they're doing they're doing pretty well. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people have been looking at this for a long time, and even um, you know you'll, you'll see a lot of systems out there where you have kind of duplicated metadata. I think the hard thing is just keeping it in sync. You know, having protocols that do it rather than you know having to to garbage collect and clean up or have orphaned metadata and things like that. So it's the protocols that will keep your metadata and any kind of replica of your metadata consistent is, is the challenging part there. Right. Mm. Yeah, it's good. It's good that things like uh, all these databases are moving to kind of the more open log replication protocols, because then you can innovate around the cool stuff coming out of the database. Yeah, the, um, yeah, I mean, the, 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 funnily enough, the, like depending on the database that you use, uh, you're going to get very different properties on the log that comes out. So the log that we, NDB is extremely high performance database, but the log that you get out, it doesn't give you what we call strict serializability. You don't get a total order on every single operation. So they don't funnel all the writes through a single um, you know, node that's going to order them uh, serially. So that gave us a few challenges, but we, we, we found a nice, elegant solution, I think, for that. Um, so the, depending on the database, you get very different properties and you have to do different work on it. And even now, you know, people will say, well, it's a new SQL database, but you really need to dig down and, and see, well, how do they handle issues like transactions that cross partitions and, you know, um, and so on. So there's, there's quite a lot of, you know, low level details that, that are very important there. So you've been doing a lot of work with AI and deep learning as well, and integrating that into the hops hops world. Yeah, we're um, so one of the, you know because we, we we've a lot of experience in the Hadoop platform. Um, you know, we, we we we're looking at kind of ways in which we could move the platform, and one of the things we looked at early on was was adding GPUs as a resource, and we thought this was a pretty obvious thing to do, but. Um, it took quite a while for the mainstream Hadoop people to get GPUs in that. That only came in really at the beginning of the year with uh, 3.1 and Hadoop. So but we've had it for, I think, since mid mid last year, 2017. And, um, you know, we, we've been running in production since, I think, autumn or the fall of last year, uh, a, a, a managed version of Hops with uh, GPUs as a resource. So you can just run applications and say, give me, 20 or 30 GPUs, and then do things like, um, so what you typically would use lots of GPUs are, uh, what you would use that for is, is maybe to reduce the time it requires to train a, a deep neural network. Um, so if you add more GPUs, what you would expect is that they would all take a smaller portion of the, the training data, and then you aggregate the training results. Uh, that's actually a difficult systems problem. So there's been some interesting 
architectures around that. I don't know if you followed us at all. You have yeah. like a fair amount yeah. the parameter servers and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, the parameter server was the first one that came out, and it's a pretty obvious one. You know, you kind of you have all these executors who who compute their local gradients and send them up to the parameter server, and pretty quickly people found out that that was a bottleneck. And um, state of the art is now the ring that we basically take a HPC algorithm from high performance computing called ring all reduce. And, um, you know, that's that's basically what most people are doing now when they're trying to do distributed training to get down their time. Uh, it's a strong scaling problem, so it's kind of interesting for us. Uh, we've been adding support around doing a new version of TensorFlow uh, called Collective All Reduce, uh, adding that into Spark to make that kind of work quite seamlessly on the platform. Um, but there's lots of things happening. Uber have a nice platform called Horovod for doing this. Uh, right, look, yeah, yeah. The other thing that people like GPUs for is, of course, when you're running experiments, and it's a, it's an easier distributed systems problem to solve because it's basically weak scaling. You just send out your experiments in parallel to lots of machines. They they'll compute different, maybe do different experiments on different hyperparameters, send your results back, and then you collect them. Um, but you know, th these are all very practical, useful things to do for people working with with deep learning because. If you have more GPUs, you can basically be more productive. Right. Well, let's talk about that. Your the academic side of your life. How long have you been at KTH? Yeah, I've, I have been KTH two thousand eleven, I think. I mean, I, I did my PhD in Trinity College Dublin. Um, uh, actually, in a research group. Do you remember Iona Technologies back from the the bubble days? One of the first Corba, middleware companies. Corba people, is that right? Corby, yeah. So I came from an old Corba group um, oh, wow. where our Iona Technologies came from my group, actually. My, my, my supervisor was Professor Vinnie Cattle, who was the first CTO of Iona. So, um, so from that background, I, I kind of ended up doing, obviously, middleware and uh, then moved over to distributed reinforcement learning, which was completely uncool uh, at the time in my PhD in 2004. Um, funnily enough, when I came to Sweden um, after that in 2005, I tried to get research to work on reinforcement learning and, and uh, I tried to get financing for it and it was, uh, I never got any money because people said, well, this, what's this exotic, strange thing? Uh, please work on big data. <laughs> so I ended up working on big data. You know, a lot, a lot of our research is, unfortunately, you know, we have trend-driven research at some level. You, 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 need, you need money to survive as a researcher, and, and if money pours into to big data, um, you know, often you end up doing bits and things on big data. And, and now money is pouring into AI, of course, so more and more people are doing systems work in, in, in AI. So um, one, one, one of the key reasons startups fail is when they're too early, and I guess research has the same problem. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can't get the funding. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, I mean, if you, I mean, I guess you know the story of, of uh, uh, deep learning and, and, and um, you know, CIFAR in Canada who, who funded a lot of the, the basic research that was done and, and the likes of you know, Jeff Hinton and, and Jan LeCun. And I think Jan LeCun had, he, for 10 years, he was submitting results on his convolutional neural nets to, to, uh, to con conferences in the area of uh, image recognition and they just wouldn't publish him and they said well you know he said, you may be beating the state of the art but you can't explain how it works you know right. so uh, <laughs> it, ta it takes quite a while to 
for these things to, to, to make their way through. I mean, at some level, I think metadata is the area where I feel that this is happening for us, right? You know, that we have this this very, very large metadata we can scale to to many terabytes in size and we can, you know, get a nice consistent stream of the metadata exported to other systems and we can enrich the metadata and we're adding metadata for lots of interesting things. And uh, many people don't really see anything, any, any, any advantage to this. And we, one of the things we've done in, in, in HOPS is um, we've added a security model. Uh, so what you're able to do is you're able to take data which is sensitive and, and that data you'd like to say, well, I'd like to isolate this data in a sandbox so that I can give a data scientist access to it, maybe run a program on it, read the data, write the data, um, um, but not be able to copy that data to somewhere else in the system. And right. in our case, you know, we, we, we saw this problem with metadata because we basically, we, add, we, we create a new abstraction called a project and then we create new users for every project. So if you're a member of a project, you have a whole new user identity and we can still use file system permissions for ensuring isolation at the file system. But if I want to copy data from one of my projects to another, there are two different identities in the system. Now, typically that would be a really expensive thing to do because you know creating user identities in the system would be thought of as being a Kerberos style thing, but we're doing certificates. Um, but managing all that metadata is, is not actually as hard as you would think if you have a nice big database at the back end with foreign keys uh, to ensure the, the uh, integrity of your, your metadata. And, uh, you know, we're adding lots, lots of new things in that area. We're, uh, one of the things we have right now, and it's not in production yet, but, but it's coming out soon, is uh, that whenever you, you read or write a file, uh, we can store the metadata for what application read it, what user read it, um, what the user wrote, so that you'll be able to do the kind of data provenance things that, that typically would be very expensive and very difficult to, to build into a system. But we can do it at the file system level, basically because we have all this uh, metadata available to us. Yeah, that sounds like it'd be incredibly useful for all kinds of purposes. Just, for instance, trying to figure out if what you think is your workflow is really your workflow <laughs> in terms of who, <laughs> who sees what files wins. Yeah, I mean, there's, a, you know, we, we, we haven't scratched the surface, I think, of what, what, what we can do when you have, when you have not, I wouldn't say unlimited, but when you have an order of magnitude more metadata available than, than what you're used to. Right. Of course, here in the US, you know, metadata means you know, the stuff that the NSA collects on your on, from the phone system <laughs> and uh this is just a, you've given me a, a small insight into how how many things they can learn just from that metadata yeah 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 well you know like what we kind of layered one of the things about metadata that's hard is ensuring the consistency and, and, and integrity of metadata so you know if you're if you're building a traditional enterprise system and you have one file system here and you have another maybe a, a, a database or, or some sort of system that's keeping reference and, and uh, to the files in the file system, you have to sync them up. You have to ensure the consistency of maybe your, your copy of the data here, your metadata here, and, and what it's pointing to over in, uh, in the file system. Like an example would be Apache Hive, which is a, a database built on the Hadoop file system. And you will have your metadata in a, maybe a MySQL server and it will tell you about the tables in the database, and then you have your file system over on the other side. Um, but if you, you know, if you remove the backing file for the database, 
the metadata in the MySQL server doesn't know about it. And, you know, you'll find out by getting some weird error and then you try and find out what happened. Well, maybe it's because that thing at the back end disappeared. But now when we have this kind of big metadata layer, uh, we actually moved all the Hive metadata into the same metadata uh, layer as our as our file system. So we now have just used foreign keys to ensure that the integrity of the Hive metadata and the file system metadata is, is uh, ensured. And that basically yeah, means from the file system, now, what this means from the file system is if I go to the database that stores Apache Hive and I do a recursive removal of all of the database files, all of the metadata gets cleaned up automatically. So we don't have to worry about uh, you know, a backing file being removed because uh, basically the, uh, the, the foreign keys in the database will ensure that eventually, they'll, not eventually, they will transactionally get, get removed. Um, so the, you know, there's there's a, a lot of possibilities with uh, with designing systems like this. You don't have to put as much manual effort into polling to make sure things are where they where they are said they were. And um, uh, it's an interesting way to build uh, new systems. So what's what's it like being a uh, startup founder in Sweden? Yeah, that's. Uh, I guess it's a bit more challenging than in the valley. Um, <laughs> you know, I think w one of the things that that we don't have in in Europe is the kind of depth of uh, technical excellence in terms of investors. You know, so the if you have a ten x solution, you develop a solution which is maybe ten times faster than existing systems, or, or is ten times higher capacity and the value that would tend to be valued uh, or a value would be able to be ascribed to it by investors but in, in europe we don't have the technical depth against amongst a lot of vcs so right. we've had difficulty uh, just raising a seed round was 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 challenging now in the end we did meet investors who did know this stuff but um it took a bit of time to to work around and find that um, and the other, the other thing about being in europe is you know you know the the the, the valley is the the center of uh of the IT world, and and you know you're out in the periphery. Okay, Stockholm is a is a, a well-known city for for startups, and we've had a lot of these uh, billion-dollar-plus companies come from there, the likes of Spotify and iZettle last week. Uh, we've had King.com and uh, Minecraft, even the company behind that. There's there's lots of tech companies here, but um, you know they're in consumer tech space. Uh, we do have obviously Ericsson and MySQL and so on in enterprise, but not as many as you would have in the Valley. Right. So it's a different scene, yeah. Well, I wish you the best of luck with it, and uh, I've been very impressed with the whole Hops project, and you deserve to make some money off of that. Anyway, well, uh, any closing words? It's kind of time to wrap up. No, I, I, I love listening to all your historical perspectives on, on computing, and long may they continue, Tom. <laughs> well, thank you. And you, thanks so you, much. You have for... wise words to impart to us. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for listening to Tech Now with Tom Lyon. We welcome your feedback. And tell your friends to tune in.